Well, it is uh, great to be here with you guys uh, this morning, and I'm looking forward to all that the Lord has uh, in store as we continue to make our way through um, the book of Luke. Uh, but before we do that, let's go ahead and dismiss our elementary age children to their Sunday school class, as well as our Bible English class. They'll be heading out with Master Dan. As uh, they've made their way out, I'd like to ask the rest of you to please open up your Bible and make your way to the book of Luke, chapter 21. Today uh, is the day um, we are finally going to wrap up our study of Jesus's Olivet Discourse. Uh, today will be part four of our study through this incredibly important portion of Scripture dealing with biblical prophecy and eschatology, okay, a real fancy word that we use to refer to the study of end times. I told you that we would go through this slowly, and it would be several parts, and uh, ended up being four parts. Today we're going to wrap it up, okay? So, um, you know, this portion we've gone through slowly, methodically, uh, making our way through this text. Today we're going to wrap everything up by looking to the overall application of this challenging portion of Scripture. This portion of Scripture is particularly challenging because of the various ways different people have interpreted the text throughout church history. You may recall how at the beginning of our study of this discourse, I noted how there were different ways that people look at this text and interpret it. Uh, some look at this text and they believe that all of the events have already taken place, that they were all fulfilled prior to the destruction of the temple and the fall of the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 A.D., Others look at this portion of uh, Scripture and believe similarly that all these events have already taken place, but instead of them all happening prior to the year 70 AD, they believe that these events took place throughout church history and that certain church, uh, certain historical events uh, kind of line up with these things, and most of them were fulfilled by around the year 5, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, by around 500 AD. And still others believe that the majority of these events have not taken place yet, that they are still yet future even for us today in the church. And so obviously, depending upon how you interpret this text, you will come away with different views on how to apply this text to the church today. And I believe, and I've you know, depending, you know, I believe and have taught through this text with the mindset that. Most of these events are still yet future for today's church, okay? Because I believe these events are still yet to be fulfilled prophecy. I think the application of this text becomes all the more important in our understanding of what God would have us to do in light of the teaching here. Understanding and realizing this is, this is for us, could be for our generation uh, that we experience and, and uh, see some of these things taking place. And so, very, very important for us. Our text this morning is actually going to encompass more than just Jesus' recorded instruction to his disciples about the end times. We're also going to jump into a little bit of chapter 22 as well. And while I do understand, okay, if you, someone wants to say something, I understand that Jesus' formal instruction ends in verse 36. I do see some important elements at the end of chapter 21 and the beginning of chapter 22 that I believe fit in with what God would have us to walk away with as a way of application of this important teaching. And so our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 21, verse 29, all the way to chapter 22, verse 6. And the title of our message, for those of you who like to take notes and maybe outline our text, it's once again going to be the Olivet Discourse. This time it's part 4 the application of the word. 
Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word? I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different version, that's okay. Just do your best to follow along, okay? Luke records the following for us in Luke chapter 21, verse 29. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in that daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of of the multitude. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God just to lead us through it. Father, we thank you uh, for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word and allow your word uh, to speak to us, to uh, instruct us, Lord, to correct us, to uh, encourage us, whatever it may need, uh, what we may need, Lord, we trust that your word will be faithful to accomplish that which you set it forth to do. And so, Lord, we uh, come with open Bibles, open hearts, open minds, open ears, that we might receive all that you have for us. Leading guide, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. This morning's text brings us to the end of Jesus' teaching on end times and the end of all the ministry that took place that eventful Tuesday of the Passion Week. It also carries us into uh, the possibility of future actions that are going to transpire over the next couple of days uh, of the Passion Week as Jesus continued his steadfast approach to the cross of Calvary. Now for our study, we're going to take Uh, our text, and we're going to break up this text into four small sections for those of you who like to take notes, each having to do with a different major point of application, okay? And so let's go ahead. We're going to dive into our text and our first major application point for today. In verses 29 through 33, we're going to read a parable that Jesus gave that highlights the fact that God wants us to know the certainty of his word, okay? To know the certainty of his word. Read with me again verses 29 through 31 just to get us started. It says, Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. We'll pause right there. Jesus, he speaks a parable here that has to do with the fig tree and other trees and when they bud. 
Remember that parables are simply earthly stories that convey a heavenly truth. Jesus used parables often to get points across to the discerning minds and hearts of his followers. And the basic understanding of this parable is actually quite simple. I I wish all the parables were uh, this simple. The fig tree uh, is considered more of a late bloomer. While most trees blossom and bloom in the early springtime, the fig tree usually doesn't blossom until late spring, and it doesn't produce good fruit until summertime comes. And because the fig tree is known to be a late bloomer that produces fruit in the summer, you know that when the fig tree begins to become tender and put forth its leaves, you know, well, summer is near, right? Likewise, Jesus says, when you see these things happening... Now, now, what things? Okay, Well, it's the signs and the events that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, the religious deception, okay? the wars and commotions, the nations rising against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms. Uh, we talked about uh, earthquakes and famines and pestilences and cosmic disturbances, increased persecution of those who follow Jesus, even the events correlated with the abomination of desolation that is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. These things. Okay, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. And that is the basic and simple understanding of this parable. Okay, just like the budding of the fig tree tells us summer is near, so too the coming of these signs will tell us that the kingdom of God is near. Now, again, that is the basic understanding of the parable, but some, however, add another element to it. Throughout Scripture, we see that the nation of Israel and the Jews are connected to and associated with figs and the fig tree. In the Old Testament books of prophecy, we read of how prophets like Jeremiah and Hosea and Nahum and Micah and Joel all spoke symbolically of the nation of Israel as being like a fig tree. In the New Testament, there's more of the same. Uh, Several months back, uh, if you've been with us for a while in our study of the Gospel of Luke, we came across a parable about a certain man who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and how he came seeking fruit from it but found none. And the owner of the fig tree wanted to chop the tree down, but the keeper of the vineyard asked the owner to, to give him one more year to see if it would produce fruit. And if it didn't, then he would cut it down. When we studied that portion of Scripture, we understood that the parable was speaking about the nation of Israel and the Jews. For over three years, Jesus had been traveling through the land of Israel, searching for, looking for, expecting to find fruit, but didn't find any. And so based upon the symbolism of the fig tree being a picture of the nation of Israel, some suggest that this parable Jesus speaks about in our text today has a deeper underlining meaning connected to the nation of Israel. Now, Many Bible scholars believe that this reference is to the rebirth of the nation of Israel, which occurred back on May 14, 1948. They tie the fact that the nation of Israel is once again a sovereign nation to end times, signs, and events. And I've studied the Bible myself, and I can see how people come to that conclusion. I understand the connections. But as we cautioned before and when we started going through this text, we want to be careful when it comes to symbolism and the use of it in biblical prophecy and making definitive statements, okay? 
While I am not 100% certain, I do tend to lean more towards this idea when considering the rebirth of the nation of Israel and its connection to the end times prophecies. Okay? Obviously, the nation of Israel needs to be around for all of these things to happen that Luke writes about happening in the city of Jerusalem, happening in Israel, and so it could very well be connected. And that would mean, well, I, I think we could say that we're getting pretty close Jesus left 2,000 years ago promising to come back. And the nation of Israel actually fell way back in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians. It was non-existent for over 2,500 years. But in the year 1948, it all of a sudden came back. You know, it's just been in the last 74 years that Israel as a nation has been around. For years, people believed these prophecies about Israel were all symbolic because there was no Israel. It's like, oh, these, all this stuff about Israel, that must be symbolic because <laughs> there's no Israel, right? Well, now 1948 comes along and now there's an Israel again, right? And now we can look at this portion of Scripture and we go, wait a second, maybe, maybe this isn't symbolic. Maybe this is tied to this. Maybe this is connected, right? And so the possible connection that this parable has to the nation of Israel is very interesting to consider I do think it carries a lot of weight and merit to it, but I also understand that Jesus, he says in verse 29 to look at the fig tree, but he also says, and all the other trees as well, right? And so it could be that this isn't just talking about the nation of Israel. So we, we want to be very careful, okay? We don't want to make any definitive statements here. Could it be connected to the nation of Israel and its rebirth? I think it's quite possible, would I say absolutely that's exactly what he was teaching here in this parable? I wouldn't be so bold to say so, okay? We have to be careful. Let's continue. We'll see what else Jesus said about this parable. Read verse 32 with me. He says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Now, the interpretation of this verse has caused a lot of confusion in the church today, and it all revolves around the interpretation of that one word, generation, Okay? The word in the Greek is the word genea, and it can be used to refer to a number of different things. The word can relate to a specific amount of time, say a 40-year period, a 70-year period, even a 100-year period. So we would talk maybe about a 40-year generation, 70-year generation, or even a 100-year generation. Okay? Within the Old Testament, when you read a lot of the Hebrew and it talks about a generation, oftentimes it correlates to a hundred years. However, in the Greek, it talks about a generation. They refer to a generation as happening three times every year. So about every 33 and a third years is a generation. So which generation is it talking about? We don't know. Okay? It can be referred to people living within the same time, regardless of age. Okay? It could be a group of people that lived during the same event. Uh, like we might say, the generation that saw the Berlin Wall come down. Okay, that could consist of very old people. It could consist of very young people. It could consist of, of kids that were just born, right? Babies. It can also refer, this word, to people of the same kind, the, the same ethnic group or race. Jesus referred to the Jews and their seeking of a sign when asking, why does this generation seek a sign? It was referring to the Jews, because it's the Jews who seek a sign, while it's the Greeks who seek after wisdom, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. And so it can even also be used to refer to descendants or to successive generations. So, this word is used in a lot of different ways. 
which way is it being used here? I don't know. Sometimes I have to stand up here and just say, I don't know. And that's why there's a lot of confusion about the interpretation of this verse. Okay? I can't say with 100% certainty, and well-respected Bible scholars don't all agree. Some say it's speaking about a specific amount of time, a 40-year generation. Some say it's a 100-year generation, perhaps a 100 years from the rebirth of the nation of Israel, that generation, that 100-year time span. Well, that'd be within the next 26 years, if that is true, okay? Some say it speaks about a group of people that lived during a certain time frame. Again, perhaps those that saw Israel uh, become a nation again. Perhaps the generation that saw Jerusalem fall. That's why some people say, oh, all this stuff has already happened, um, you know, because it was that generation. Uh, or maybe it's going to be the generation of people that see the, these things happening, the end times events uh, associated that Jesus has been talking about. Others say it's speaking about the Jewish race that the Jewish race will not pass away until all these things take place. It could be any one of these things, and it still would fit the surrounding context. And so we just can't say with certainty, all right? We just don't know. All that we can say with certainty is that there will be a generation, whatever that generation is, that will not pass away until all these things come to pass. Let's move on. Take a look at the next verse, verse 33. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, okay? A day is coming when heaven and earth as we know it will be no more. When it's talking about heaven here, it's talking about the stars, the the planets, you know, the skies, uh, not the abode of God, okay? Uh, But the uh, atmosphere, uh, we might say, okay? Listen to what Peter writes to the church in Second Peter chapter 3. He says this, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. He continues in verse 11 and 12. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the heavens will be dissolved uh, on fire. According to Revelation chapter 21, after the thousand-year reign of Christ and after Satan is released one last time and then subsequently captured, thrown into the lake of fire, there will be the great white throne judgment and then God will destroy this heaven and earth and he will create a new heaven and a new earth according to Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. Everything is going to burn eventually. Sooner or later, it's all going to burn and be lost, all except the Word of God. The Word of God will last forever. Okay, Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word will last forever. It is eternal. It is dependable. And that is why, you guys, we place such a high priority upon the Word of God here at Calvary Chapel. We don't have a lot of the latest and greatest you know, gadgets and gizmos that some churches may do and, and they may invest in. Okay? We really don't want them. Okay, That's not 
our style. We're not really flashy. I'm not really flashy. Sorry. Okay. We keep things simple. Okay. Simply teaching the word of God simply. That's what we do here. That's what we aim to do at least. Okay. If we're going to be known for something, let it be for something that will last for all of eternity. Okay. God's word is truth. According to John chapter 17, verse 17, it will not pass away. It will not fail us. We can trust it, and we will always be able to turn to it for help and guidance in this life. And so we are to know the certainty of God's word, right? God's word will come to pass. Of this, we can be absolutely certain of. Let's continue. We'll take a look at our next section of Scripture that carries the application of watching for the fulfillment of, of God's word. Read verses 34 and 35 to get us going. It says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Here, Jesus gives us a command. Okay, it's in the imperative form. In the beginning of verse 34, we are to take heed Uh, Your translation may read, uh, be careful or be on guard or watch out, depending upon which translation you're reading from. The word carries with it the sense or idea of being cautious or alert to something. Uh, One of my lexicons, I, I liked what it said. It states how this word is speaking about being, and I quote, in a continuous state of readiness to learn of any future danger, need, or error, and to respond appropriately. The future dangers and errors are spoken of here in our verse. They have to do with letting our hearts be weighed down with drunkenness and carousing and the cares of this life, and we end up being caught off guard when the day of the Lord comes. Listen, you guys, we need to be living our lives ready for the return of Christ. We cannot allow ourselves to get caught up in the things of this world. The word carousing here literally means dissipation. Uh, The word in the Greek, when I looked it up in my uh, dictionary, it's actually the Greek word for a hangover, all right? This is a strong warning about no longer living as the world lives. It is a call to holy living based upon a proper understanding of the times in which we live, okay? Paul exhorts us similarly in the book of Romans stating, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Listen, we need to walk properly, understanding that our time is short, okay? Understanding that the Lord's return is near, that it could come at any time. And instead of getting involved in drunkenness and dealing with hangovers, we need to deny these things. Paul wrote to Titus saying, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, you guys, it is the grace of God 
by which we were saved that teaches us that we should no longer live according to the way that we used to live. Listen, hangovers and drunkenness, they're part of the old life, the life that we lived prior to God's grace touching our lives. The grace of God has brought us out of those things. Why on earth would we ever go back to them? Especially in consideration of Christ's imminent return. Jesus warns that the day of his return is going to come upon those in the world and those caught up in the affairs of this world unexpectedly. That's why it is so important that we be on the watch, that we be ready for it when it does come. I want you guys to note something with me. We see this here in Luke's gospel, okay? But in Matthew's parallel account, it reads, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Mark speaks similarly of the need to watch, because we do not know the time that the master of the house is coming. Christ is going to come back when you least expect it. I just quoted a few moments ago from 2 Peter chapter 3 that spoke about the coming of the day of the Lord being like a thief in the night. Paul says the same in 1 Thessalonians. He says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. John writes in the book of Revelation, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Jesus is quoted in the book of Revelation, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Yeah, I just read that twice. Jesus is quoted as saying, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. I want you guys to note something. Hey, I don't know about you, but if I read something that Jesus says over and over again, and I can read about it in Matthew's writing and I can read about it in Mark's writing, and I can read it about it in Luke's writing, and I can read about it in John's writing, and I can read about it in Peter's writing, and I can read it about Paul's writing. Don't you think it ought to be something that we pay attention to? I think God's saying, this is important, okay? All these people who are writing the New Testament, I'm going to make sure every one of them lets you know this is important. I think it ought to be a clue as to just how serious the Lord is about something. Jesus is coming back. We need to be watching. We need to be ready for him to fulfill his promises. In verse 36, it says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. We need to watch. We need to be praying always, okay? To watch, it means to be vigilant, to abstain from sleeping, to be watchful and attentive to spiritual matters. Don't get caught napping, okay? Don't get caught sleeping on the job. To pray always, it, it means that we must keep ourselves in constant communion with the Lord. It speaks of a close and intimate relationship with the Lord. We are to pray that we would be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. How do we do that? How do we make ourselves worthy, okay? How can we make ourselves worthy to stand before the Son of Man? I have some bad news for you, church family. In and of ourselves, we cannot. It is impossible, okay? We are unworthy, okay? 
The only thing that we are worthy of is death and destruction. That is what we deserve in this life. And the only place that we can find our true worth is through the grace of the Lord and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our worth is found in Him and in Him alone. God showed us how much we were worth to Him by sending His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's John 3.16, right? We know that. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. If we want any sort of hope of standing before the Son of Man when all is said and done, it is only found in and through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We must acknowledge Jesus Christ as the only worthy one and rest upon his grace. Let's continue in our study. I told you we would divide our text into four sections, okay, each dealing with an overarching application. We've noted our need to know the certainty of God's Word in verses 29 through 33. We just looked at how we need to watch for the fulfillment of God's Word in verses 34 through 36. Now let's turn our attention to the last two verses of the chapter as we note the need to seek to hear God's word. Read with me verses 37 and 38. It says, and in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. These final two verses are not part of Jesus's formal instruction upon the end times, but I do see an important correlation between what is described here and how it applies to our lives as we live for and watch for the return of our Lord. These verses are more of a summary type statement that Luke gives to us describing the typical day and night of that final week in Jerusalem leading up to the crucifixion. Jesus would go to the temple and he would teach during the daytime, but at night he, along with the rest of his disciples, would go out and they would stay on the mountain called Olivet, okay? more commonly referred to as the Mount of Olives. Okay, and this is where the name Olivet Discourse comes from. Jesus gave this instruction to his disciples in the evening while on the mountain uh, called Olivet, hence the name Olivet Discourse. We know that there were a couple of different villages that were situated upon the Mount of Olives. Some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, had a house in one of these villages, the village of Bethany. Um, we know from other portions of Scripture that Jesus would often visit and stay at their home. Perhaps this is where they would gather after a long day of ministry at the temple. Now, the verse I want to key in on and draw application from is verse 38. It reads, Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Two things stand out to me here that I would like to highlight for as far as application. The first thing I want to point out is a matter of priority. Okay, a prior, matter of priority. Listen, I will admit okay, that I really am not a morning person. Okay, I know that I should be. You don't need to come tell me after church about the different books that you've read, about how efficient early risers are. And I've, I've read the books. I've listened to the podcast. I, I know, okay? Um, yes, early risers are super efficient workers, and they're wonderful. Everybody should be an early riser, okay? Um, I've tried it. Hey, I've tried it a number of times, but all I end up doing is exhausting myself. I make matters worse because of sleep deprivation, okay? If I could actually get to bed at a decent hour, it might work, but I just lack the discipline uh, to go to bed by 9 o'clock p.m., okay? But I know a number of you are morning people, okay? I know how some of you like to get up by 4 o'clock 
or five o'clock and get in your PT. Okay, you hit the gym or your morning workout before the sun even rises. Okay, and that's great. Hey, there, there is there is nothing wrong with that as long as your priorities are in order. Okay. The people in our text, they're described as rising early in the morning and heading to the temple with the express interest of simply wanting to hear from Jesus. These people made hearing from Jesus a priority. It was important enough for them to adjust their schedules and to modify their plans that they may have that time to hear from him. And I think the point is very clear for us to see. What sort of priority do we give to spending time in God's word and hearing from him? Is it such a priority that you're willing to sacrifice maybe a few extra minutes of sleep or a few less laps around the block or a few less sets at the gym in order to get in that needed time with the Lord? As we see the day of the Lord approaching, drawing nearer with the passing of each day, we need to make spending time with Him in His Word, hearing from Him a priority in our lives, okay? Now, the second thing I want to point out here, it's a matter of priority, but it's also a matter of consistency. Okay? Again, verses 37 and 38, they read more like a summary of sorts. This is what each of the days that, of that week looked like. Jesus would wake up, he'd head straight to the temple to teach, he would spend his day there and um, then spend the night on the Mount of Olives, and early each morning the people would show up there at the temple to hear what Jesus had to say. When it comes to the return of Jesus Christ and what we ought to be doing in preparation for and in anticipation of his return, I think we can often think we should be doing anything and, and everything possible. We're like, oh no, the time is neat. We need to, everybody needs to get saved and I need to go out and do this and I need to go to the forest, you know, places, you know, the remote jungles and spread the gospel, right? And that's wonderful and glorious if that's what God's called you to do, okay? But listen, okay? I understand that. We want to take advantage of the time we have. We want to be faithful with what God's given us, but we don't want to get so busy with activities for the Lord that we don't have time for intimacy with the Lord, okay? We do not want to get so busy with activities for the Lord that we don't have time for intimacy with the Lord. You know, I am reminded of what happened upon a different mount in the region of Galilee about a little less than a year or so before this incident here in Luke 21 on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys may be familiar with that portion of Scripture. Jesus had taken a select few of his disciples up with him upon a certain mountaintop in the region of Galilee to pray. And as Jesus prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the disciples who were there with Jesus were actually half asleep when this took place. But once they saw what was happening, once they saw the glory of Jesus and how he spoke with the two, they were wide-eyed and they were in awe of it all. Peter, one of the disciples with Jesus at that time, he saw that their conversation was drawing to an end and that the moment was going to pass. And so he interjects, he calls out to Jesus and he suggests that they, you know, quickly make three tabernacles for them to stay in. You know, when I read that portion of scripture, I get the sense that Peter and the disciples, they were all worked up. They were so excited to be part of that incredible event, and they were ready to do whatever necessary to make that moment last as long as possible. But I love what the Lord does. 
If you're familiar with that portion of Scripture, you know what happens. As Peter's making his suggestions about all the things that he could do to prolong this event, he's like, oh, Jesus, you know, uh, we'll make three tabernacles. I'll make one for you. We'll make one for Elijah. We'll make one for Moses. And we're going to just set up shop here on the mountain. It's going to be awesome, right? And you know what God does? God comes and he overshadows them. And he speaks to them. And he says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Peter and the disciples, they were all worked up. They were ready to get to work, building tabernacles and setting up shop right there on the mountain. They were wanting and waiting for the kingdom of God to come. They probably thought this was the beginning of it. Oh, okay, and the time's come. Look, Moses, Moses Elijah. Oh, man, this is going to be so exciting. But the father calls out to them as if to say, listen, don't get distracted by your desire to see things come to fruition. Don't get busy with activities and actions trying to make things happen. He redirects their attention to his son and the importance of simply listening to him. Hear him was his directive. Hear him. That is what is most important. That is what we need to be doing on a regular, consistent basis basis, spending time with him, listening to his word, allowing his word to lead us, to guide us, to encourage us, to equip us as we actively wait and watch for his coming. And as we are consistent to meet with the Lord on a regular basis, he will speak to us and he will show us what we ought to be doing. And he may call us to go preach the gospel to the masses that don't know but he will always have us to hear him. Yeah? And so we must make sure that that is part of our normal, consistent walk with the Lord as well, that we take time to hear him on a regular basis. The Lord's return is soon, but don't forget the importance of seeking him and his word for each day between then and now. Let's turn our attention to the last section of our text, chapter 22. It's verses 1 through 6, and we're going to note the importance of devoting ourselves to the Word of God. Okay, devoting ourselves to the Word of God. Read with me verses 1 and 2 just to get us going. It says, Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was drawing near, and the religious leaders continued to seek out to plot out ways in which they might kill Jesus. This wasn't something new. They've been trying to find ways to rid themselves of Jesus for some time now. They tried trapping Jesus in his words in an attempt to seize upon something that he may say that they could use it against him, but that all failed. Jesus was able to answer all of their questions. He was able to avoid all of their crafty attempts at catching Jesus in his words. Not only did he avoid their traps, but he often was able to swing those traps around upon themselves, leaving them looking like fools in front of all the people. And it got to the point where they completely abandoned those ideas and they decided it was better for them just, just, just to no longer question Jesus. Let's not even talk to him anymore because every time we question him, he's got an answer and he makes us look foolish. Okay, So we're not even going to go that approach anymore. And so they're left wondering, what could they do? They couldn't just go grab him without any sort of cause. The people loved going out to hear Jesus, and the leaders risked a revolt by the people if they were to seize him publicly without any formal accusations. The religious leaders feared the people in that if they were to revolt, especially during a time like the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where the city would swell with these 
pilgrims coming from all over throughout the land, coming to worship the Lord at these feasts, it would draw the attention of the Romans. And it would upset the delicate balance of power they had acquired from the hands of the Romans. And so it's for this reason that according to Matthew's gospel, the religious leaders has actually, they had actually decided not to make any sort of move against Jesus until after the Passover feast, lest there be some sort of uproar among the people. The religious leaders said, hey man, the, the Passover is getting too close. Everybody's coming in here. We just need to stop our attacks on Jesus. This is going nowhere. It's going to stir the people up. Let's just wait. We'll wait this out. We'll come back after the Passover and we'll deal with him. That was their plan, okay? And all of that changed after what happens in verses 3 through 6. Read them with me as we look to wrap up this last bit of our study. It says, in verses 3 through 6, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. The religious leaders probably struggled to believe the actions of Judas here. For years, they'd been trying to stop Jesus, to trap him, to find some quiet way to seize Jesus without it causing a major scene, all to no avail. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one of his very own, one of the 12 that had been with him for the last three years, secretly approached them and was willing to make a deal with them to betray Jesus and hand him over quietly into their hands. It was almost good, too good to be true. For the religious leaders, Judas approached them and he wanted to know what they would give him in exchange for him delivering Jesus to them. Now, we do know that Judas was a thief. Um, the Bible tells us that he was one, uh, the one that was placed in charge of overseeing the money box of uh, uh, the offerings uh, that people had given to help support the ministry of Jesus as he traveled around and the disciples. John chapter 12 tells us that Judas had the money box and that he used it to take what he used to take what was put inside it for himself. And after talking it over with Judas, the religious leaders agreed to give Judas some money for his betrayal of Jesus. And according to Matthew's gospel in chapter 26, verse 15, we find out that the price that was agreed upon was 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave based upon Old Testament evaluations. Now, it would seem that the deal they struck was an extremely favorable one for the religious leaders. This wasn't some common slave they were getting in exchange. This was the one that threatened their place within the hierarchy of society. I would think that Judas could have negotiated a much higher price had he not been so set on betraying Jesus himself. And that is what I really want to focus in upon here as we wrap up our study. Why did Judas betray Jesus? And how does that apply to our study of the Olivet Discourse? Okay. We do know that the scriptures say here that Satan entered him, but I believe Judas first needed to be open to that possibility. What was it that made him turn from Jesus after following him for the past three years? What was it that caused him to flip? And while the scriptures do not give us a specific reason for Judas's actions, let me suggest one possibility that I believe played a huge role in Judas's actions. And though it's not explicit within the text, I think we can infer it by understanding the overall context of what we do read in Scripture, okay? 
I believe that Judas, like most of the other disciples, that they believed that the Messiah was going to come in, he was going to overthrow the Roman occupation, and he was going to set up an earthly kingdom where he would rule and reign over the nation of Israel and eventually the entire world. Okay? Many believe that Jesus could be the Messiah, that he could be the one to finally rid them of the Roman occupation and give to them the freedom and the autonomy to do as they pleased as a sovereign nation. And it is very probable that Judas followed Jesus, hoping to benefit from his association with him as the new reigning political power. Jesus is going to be the new Messiah. He's going to be the new ruler. And I know him. We're close friends, okay? He no doubt thought that he would uh, have a a position, a very high-ranking position. We know that the disciples on a regular basis argued about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. There's even record of two of them that used their mom to try and go get Jesus to secure. Hey, Jesus, will you give my two sons, you know, the positions on your right hand and on your left? You know, when you enter into your kingdom, they were all vying for positions of power. Well, Judas was the treasurer for the 12. Why not be the treasurer for the sovereign nation, right? Maybe he's thinking to himself, wow, you know, I I've, could have access to a much larger money box if I just ride this thing out. But by the time of Judas's betrayal, Jesus had made it very clear that he planned to die upon the cross in humility, not to start a rebellion and overthrow Rome. Judas's hopes of the coming kingdom and his place within that kingdom all of a sudden all came tumbling down. And this created that opening Satan was looking for and that he exploited. And I suggest to you that Judas betrayed Jesus because Jesus did not operate in a way that was conducive for how he believed the kingdom should be established and set up. Judas's disillusionment and Jesus's lack of coming and establishing an earthly kingdom ultimately led to his downfall is what I would suggest to you. And so how does this apply to us and to the teaching Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives regarding end times and the coming of Jesus and the end of the age? How does that apply to us? Well, I believe Judas stands as an example to us of what can happen when we allow ourselves to get into a similar place where we begin to question Jesus' actions in the building of his kingdom, right? Sometimes we can get impatient with the Lord and we can start to wonder why Jesus hasn't come back yet and why he continues to delay his coming and the establishment of his earthly kingdom. We need to guard our hearts against unmet expectations or unrealistic expectations we may have about God's return and the establishment of his kingdom. God is long-suffering, okay? Not desiring that any should perish. That's what 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We need to be like our Lord and we need to exercise patience. Okay, we need to be long-suffering. We need to patiently endure the things of this world as the Lord works upon His master blueprints for the kingdom. Paul encourages us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. I suggest to you that Judas lost heart. That he grew weary of Jesus' plans for the kingdom and he decided to seek out his own will and it ended up in his destruction. You know, I entitled this section, Devote Yourself to the Word of God. Because we need to be completely devoted to the Lord, Jesus Christ, as we patiently and actively wait for his kingdom to come. 
And in John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the gospel opens up saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. A few verses down, it says in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was God, and He became flesh, and He dwelt among us. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Word of God become flesh. And so the application that we want to walk away with is our need to be completely devoted in our lives to the Word of God become flesh, Jesus Christ. And as we fully and completely submit ourselves to Christ and His plans for us and His plans for His kingdom, He will give to us what is needed to persevere. He will give us what's needed to not grow weary. His Spirit inside us will strengthen us even in our weakest of days. Jesus promised Paul that his grace was sufficient for him and that his strength was perfected in his weakness. And I believe that same promise applies to each and every one of us as well. Don't give up. Don't grow weary, okay? Continue to persevere to devote your life to Jesus Christ and he will give you everything you need in order to make it through to the very end where we will one day stand before our Lord and God and maker and we will bow before him and worship and in adoration for all that he has done for us. And let me tell you, church family, that will be a glorious day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for... This portion, the Olivet Discourse, and uh, our opportunity to go through and to learn from it, to look at end times and yet to be fulfilled future events, Lord. Uh, As we consider the application, Lord, I, I trust and believe that you want us to know the certainty of your word, that it will come to pass as you've said it, Lord. Lord, and that you want us to watch for Uh, the fulfillment of your word, Lord, and you want us to make sure that we make it a priority and and that we are consistently getting into your word. And Lord, that ultimately you want us to be completely devoted to the word become flesh, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I just hope and pray that that that's what we would do, that we would surrender afresh uh, today again our lives to you, that we would be completely devoted to you, Lord, and that we would trust in you, your timetable, your working for your kingdom, Lord, and that we would know that your will and your plans are far greater than ours. Lord, as we wait for your coming, we do so uh, actively, Lord, not sitting passively by, but Lord, actively seeking you, wanting to know what you would have for us between now and then. And so, Lord, lead us. Lord, guide us. Speak to us. Show us your will and give us the strength to follow through. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.